Welcome to the Westminster Pulpit, an extension of the worship ministry at Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format, and may this sermon nurture your life in a meaningful way as we proclaim our Savior. We now join our senior pastor, Dr. Chris Walker. Well, we're coming with this theme of Christ who died, now risen on high, and our glory and our joy, to Mark chapter 16. And so I invite you to open your Bibles there this morning. I am thankful for Dr. Light and Dr. Kiefer and their excellent treatment of Mark 15 and all of its dark grief. But this morning we come to the joy of resurrection and the end of this gospel. As a brief preview, I will let you know that next week we'll be turning to the book of Proverbs in the Old Testament, Uh, but this morning we look one last time at the Gospel of Mark. Now, I have to begin this sermon differently than most sermons, because I can't even read the text of Mark 16 without commenting on the text first. If you look at your Bible down by verse 9, most of you will see brackets or a footnote or something that says something along the lines of some of the earliest manuscripts do not include verses 9 through 20. And the reason for this comment is that there is significant question over whether verses 9 through 20 are part of God's Word or whether they were added by someone else later. And that, of course, leads pastors to debate the question of, should I be preaching on verses 9 through 20 or not? So first, let me explain the question. As you know, we don't have the original documents of the Gospels or the letters of uh, the New Testament from the first century, those perfect, inerrant, inspired from the Lord. But what we have are manuscripts that were copied from the originals and distributed throughout the church in a variety of languages over the centuries. Of course, not everyone copied these letters perfectly. There certainly are are mistakes in the copying, but the blessing of God is that we have so many copies that it's easy to tell most of the time when we have a mistake and what is true and what is not. And a theologian from the last century gave us this example, which I think is helpful. He said, imagine that the National Institute of Standards and Technology in Washington, D.C., the the place that houses the standard for how long a foot is, suddenly burned to the ground. Would we have no idea anymore how long a foot is? Well, no, of course we would know how long a foot is because there are hundreds of thousands of rulers that all agree with each other all around the United States. And if you came upon one ruler that was slightly longer or slightly shorter, it would be quite obvious which one was wrong because you'd have the 100,000 others which all agreed uh, against the mistake. And that's something of the way it is with Scripture. We have tens of thousands of manuscripts of the New Testament, and they agree with each other. And it's very easy to tell when a, a mistake was made in the copies in the vast majority of cases. There are just a few places throughout the New Testament where there are questions. Most of the time with one word or a little phrase that we say, I'm not sure, is it, is it this or, or is it this? And none of these cases have anything uh, of any impact on our theology or the facts of the gospel. But there are two places 
here in Mark 16 and a section of John 8 where there's a bit of a longer section where we don't know for sure whether these were part of the original uh, scriptures or whether they were added later. Well, why are these verses questionable? Let me explain this to you. The first reason is this. Most manuscripts we have of Mark include verses 9 through 20. However, the oldest manuscripts we have do not include these verses, and many of the manuscripts that do include them have a marginal note saying these were not original, they were added later, or they have an asterisk by them to sort of set them off from the rest of the gospel. Many early church writers and and theologians quote these verses and show awareness of them, but others quote them and say, but these weren't originally part of the Scriptures. And so from very early in the church, within the first couple of decades, there was debate over, over these verses. That's the first reason why there's question. The second reason there's question, and while I'm not a, a PhD in Greek, I have taught Greek and read a fair bit of Greek, And even I, as you read through these verses in Greek, can sense the sudden change in grammar, tone, and content between verses 8 and 9. It is almost as if verse 8 breaks off, perhaps even mid-sentence, and a whole new summary of the resurrection starts in verse 9. And so I think the evidence likely suggests that the last verses of Mark were lost early on for whatever reason, and that someone, a leader in the early church, probably uh, wrote these verses about Christ's resurrection and ascension to make the testimony complete. Now, it could be wrong about that, but these are the reasons why there is question. But what I hope to do in covering this is to highlight there are only two brief sections in the entirety of the New Testament that this sort of question is there a word or a phrase from here and there. But what I hope is that this highlights how great our reliability of our text is, that the vast, vast majority, the 99.9% of this is really beyond question because of the evidence that God has given us for the reliability of the text in front of us, that this is faithful to the Word of God as delivered by the Holy Spirit through those who wrote the Word. And so I start here to explain the note in your text and to help us understand how we're going to read through these verses, but also to highlight how reliable the Scriptures are. And so as I I take it, agreeing with R.C. Sproul and others, what I'm going to do is I'm going to read the whole of the chapter, all of these, but I take verses 9 through 20 as a true account because everything in them agrees with the other three Gospels. In other words, there's nothing here that is not verified by the other Scriptures, so I think we can read them and learn from them and and trust the content on them, but I would not base a theological argument or doctrine on a word from uh, or something from those verses because of the uncertainty uh, of their um, originality. Fortunately, we don't have to because God's Word elsewhere in perfect reliability gives us everything we need. All right, so end of seminary lecture, but necessary preface to the word. Let's move on then and read the text of Mark chapter 16. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Salome, bought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And they were saying to one another, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? 
And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where he was laid. But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Now, when he rose early on the first day of the week, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene, from whom he had cast out seven demons. She went and told those who had been with him as they mourned and wept. But when they heard that he was alive and had been seen by her, they would not believe it. After these things, he appeared in another form to two of them as they were walking into the country. And they went back and told the rest, but they did not believe them. Afterward, he appeared to the eleven themselves as they were reclining at table. And he rebuked them for their unbelief and hardness of heart, because they had not believed those who saw him after he had risen. And he said to them, Go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. And these signs will accompany those who believe. In my name they will cast out demons, they will speak in new tongues. They will pick up serpents with their hands, and if they drink any deadly poison, it will not hurt them. They will lay their hands on the sick, and they will recover. So then the Lord Jesus, after he had spoken to them, was taken up into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God, and they went out and preached everywhere, while the Lord worked with them and confirmed the message by accompanying signs. Father, how we thank you for this passage, how we thank you for your word, which confirms the truth of all of these things. And Father, I pray that you would use it this morning to encourage our hearts and draw us to Christ. We pray it in his name. Amen. At some point, maybe in, in high school English class, you all probably had to learn about the narrative arc of a story. Maybe you remember the graph. Maybe you had to draw it for a quiz at some point. It starts with the exposition where a story explains who the characters are and their background. And then you get the rising action where a conflict or a problem is introduced and and things begin to happen. And then you get, of course, the climax of the story where the action comes to a head and the main event takes place. And then you get the resolution and the denouement where things are wrapped up and the story comes to an end. Well, if you were reading the Gospel of Mark for the first time, I would think that when you came to the end of chapter 15, you would assume you had just gotten to the climax of the story. The whole Gospel has been showing Jesus, and it's given foreshadows of His death, and it's shown increasing conflict with the religious leaders. And then all of a sudden, you get Jesus arrested, tried, convicted, crucified, and sealed in a tomb. And you think there the action has reached its climactic point, and now we're just going to see things wrap up. But if that's what you were assuming, you would be wrong. Because it turns out that Mark 15 and this this death and crucifixion of Jesus was just the preparation for the even more climactic moment of Jesus' resurrection triumph 
here in Mark 16. And that's the main point of this chapter, that Jesus surprised everyone by rising from the dead, and His resurrection changes everything. Jesus surprised everyone by rising from the dead, and His resurrection changed everything. Now, in our time together, I want to look at the unexpectedness of Jesus' resurrection. I want to look at the significance of Jesus' resurrection, and then I want to look at the result of Jesus' resurrection. But let's start with the unexpectedness of the resurrection, which dominates verses 1 through 8, and then, of course, those verses 9 through 14. Now, when I say that Jesus' resurrection was unexpected, I do not for a second mean that His resurrection should have been unexpected. Jesus had told His disciples multiple times, again and again, that He would rise from the dead. And if you take the content we've read here and in the other Gospels of Jesus' resurrection, everything about it happens exactly as Jesus had said it would. From His rising again, to His going ahead of them to Galilee, to His returning to His Father, all of them, all of those details He had told them. But the Gospel writers consistently convey that all of His Father's thought that his life was over. And so the things that happen in Mark 16 are a complete surprise to them. The first surprise comes from Mary, Mary, and Salome. As you uh, open this chapter, we see these three women who, when the Sabbath was passed, went out and bought spices. If you remember in first century Israel that a day came to an end and a new day started at sundown, I think it likely that it was at sundown on Saturday night when the Sabbath was over that they went out and bought these spices. And then very early at the dawn of, the, of Sunday morning, they went to the tomb. And apparently it wasn't until they were on their way that they began discussing the sort of uh, obvious problem. How are they going to get that very large stone rolled away from the entrance? Uh, maybe they were expecting a gardener or someone else uh, for help. But what's clear is that they had two expectations. Number one, there was going to be a sealed tomb. And number two, there was going to be a 15 hours dead body inside that tomb. But in verse 4, they arrive to find the stone has rolled away. Well, that's unexpected. You know, you know what happens when you come across a situation and something is different from what you thought it would be. And there's sort of that anxiety or that, that tension as you try to figure out what's going to happen. And I, I imagine that sort of uh, edge on edge uh, tension as they walked into the tomb. But even still, I don't think they were expecting resurrection. I think they're probably thinking, well, man, maybe someone else with spices got here first and has rolled the stone away. But even more startling than the stone being rolled back, they find no body. And even more startling than finding no body, they do find an angel in shining splendor standing there. And just because there's a lot of angels in the Gospels, don't think that they were just used to seeing angels all the time. This would have been very unexpected and shocking uh, here in the New Testament. Of course, even more startling than finding an angel is the angel announcing that Jesus, whom they're looking for, has been raised from the dead and will go ahead of his disciples to meet them in Galilee just as he said. Now Mark in verses 5 through 8 piles up words to express the fear and surprise that faced these women. He says they were alarmed, they fled, they trembled, and astonishment seized them. They were afraid. Isn't it interesting that Mark doesn't say, 
And when they heard that Jesus was alive again, they went away rejoicing and singing praises. No, it says they went away alarmed, terrified. This was unexpected, and it overwhelmed them. Now, from verses 9 through 14, and of course, everything in those verses is 100% verified and related in the other Gospels as well, we find that the news of Jesus' resurrection was just as unexpected for the 12 disciples who responded with unbelief. The women return with the news that Jesus is alive and the disciples don't believe them. Two men on the road to Emmaus announce they've seen Jesus and the disciples don't believe them. In fact, Luke's gospel tells us that even when Jesus himself showed up in the upper room to the eleven, they thought they were seeing a ghost and didn't believe it at first. This is how preposterously unexpected the resurrection was for all who knew and loved Jesus. And this is significant because it helps to verify for us the credibility of the story. You know, if you were going to run the gospel story through a fact checker, if you were worried about a misinformation campaign from the, the disciples and wondered whether this was really true or not, this story would check out completely as true fact. You get the fact that the witnesses, the only ones who saw the angel in the empty tomb were, were women, and women were considered uncredible witnesses before Jewish law. You have the fact that no one here expected resurrection. Clearly, the disciples and the women were, were not thinking of this as even remotely possible. It's not a story they would cook up and say, I know, let's propose resurrection. No, that wasn't even within their frame of reference. And then you get the fact that the response is fear, terror, and unbelief. Hardly the flattering account that you'd want to say, hey, guys, this is really believable. Why don't you, you believe this story? No, everything about this story is not evidence of something made up trying to be convincing. It is evidence of a story relating exactly what happened, even in its embarrassing detail for the disciples in the first days of the church. Now, this unexpectedness of the resurrection, which verifies its historicity, leads to our second point this morning, and that's the significance of the resurrection. The historical fact of the resurrection of Jesus from the dead is the most important fact in all of history. And it confronts every single one of us with a choice. Either God did raise Jesus from the dead, and therefore he validated and confirmed who Jesus is and everything Jesus said, or Jesus did not rise from the dead and he is a fraud. Those are our two options when we come to the story. And those options are significant because as Paul explains in 1 Corinthians 15, if Jesus did not rise from the dead, then we are still in our sins and our faith is futile. We are still sin sinners. And this whole service of worship is a waste of our time. And giving our money to missions around the world is a waste of our money if Jesus is still dead in the grave. But... If Jesus did rise from the dead, that means, Paul says in 1 Timothy 3.16, that God has vindicated him and affirmed his claim to be the Son of God and Savior of the world. 
It means, as Paul says in Acts 17.31, that God has appointed Jesus to judge all mankind. And He has given us proof that this is true by raising Him from the dead. And that's why verse 16, which is fully confirmed by John chapter 3 and John chapter 5, puts it so starkly when it says, whoever believes and is baptized will be saved. For this is the Son of God who shed His blood for us that we might be redeemed. But whoever does not believe will be condemned. And that's not just some harsh statement that Jesus is going to be upset with you if you don't believe in Him. No, it is because to reject or to turn from God's Son whom He sent as Savior of the world, whom He has appointed judge of all mankind, to reject Him or to turn from Him is to commit treason against the King of kings and is to ignore the only one capable of saving sinners. These are starkly different results and they make it pretty important for us to know what is true. And that's the practical significance of the resurrection. It confronts us, but there's also a theological significance to the resurrection. See, the resurrection communicates, affirms, and makes true all of the blessings that Christ gives to those who look to Him in faith. Again, Paul says in 1 Corinthians fifteen seventeen, if Christ has not been raised from the dead, then you are still in your sins. But what does that mean other than that if Christ is risen from the dead and our faith is in Him, then He has paid for our sins. See, the resurrection means that God has accepted Jesus' death as a payment for our sins. It means that He has opened the floodgates of forgiveness for those who are united to Christ. And Mark 16 shows how effective that sacrifice was. Look at verse 7 there. The angel is talking to the women. She's just announced the resurrection from the dead. And what does she say? She says, Go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you into Galilee. That is tremendously significant. Because who were the disciples? Well, they were that group of people who had the last thing they did while Jesus was alive was abandon him and flee. And what about Peter? Who was Peter? Well, he was the one who the last thing he did while Jesus was alive was deny Jesus three times and not just deny him, but call a curse down on himself if he was lying, which he was. And so, when one of the first things spoken at the resurrection of Jesus is to say, Peter, disciples, Jesus is going ahead of you to meet with you, to be with you in Galilee, just as he said. Well, that shows us that the resurrection means Christ's death on our behalf has been accepted. Our sins can be forgiven through repentance and faith. We can be washed clean and welcomed again into the presence of God. And the angel's words give us a practical proof that this is true right here. You may remember back uh, in Mark 14 when Jesus foretold Peter's denial. He said, but after I am risen, I am going to meet you in Galilee. And we said that was a foretaste, a, a hint of the forgiveness that would be accomplished through his death and resurrection. And that's affirmed by the angel's words perfectly here in chapter 16. 
But it's not just forgiveness of sins. That's not the only thing Jesus accomplishes for us. Anyone who submits to Jesus and follows Him in faith is joined to Christ. We are united to Christ because the same Spirit of God that raised Jesus from the dead, the risen Jesus sends to dwell in us as well. And that means the Holy Spirit with His resurrection power now dwells in us by faith. He it is who has regenerated our hearts. He gives us new life, makes us new again in Him. And this same Spirit is the one who will raise us from the dead to live with Christ eternally forever. Paul puts it this way in Ephesians 2. He says, But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which He loved us, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. He raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. And what makes all of this possible? Forgiveness of sins, a regenerated heart, a new life, and the hope of resurrection? It's Jesus' resurrection. None of that is possible for us with a dead Jesus in the tomb. All of it is possible for us with a risen Jesus who sends his spirit to unite us to himself. And so once again, we see that the resurrection of Jesus is the most significant moment in all of history. We've seen the unexpectedness of the resurrection, which only serves to verify its truth. We've seen the significance of the resurrection and the decision that faces each one of us. But finally, I want us to consider the result of the resurrection. And what I mean by that is what Jesus announces as a consequence of his resurrection. And you see it there in verse 15. And verse 15 is a reiteration of the great commission that we find in Matthew 28. Go into all the world and proclaim the gospel. See, because of the resurrection, all authority on heaven and on earth has now been given to Jesus Christ. And as their risen Lord, His first command and instruction is to take the good news of salvation to the ends of the earth. I don't want us to miss this. The gathering and the discipling of Christ's people is the mission, the central task which Christ has entrusted to his church while we are here on earth. And that means that each one of us individually and corporately as a church, Christ has given us a calling and a responsibility to participate in this mission. Christ's first resurrection command implies our involvement in missions and evangelism. It implies our financial commitment to mission. It implies our regular prayer for the progress of the gospel and for those who do not know Christ. That is the first thing that Jesus announces. I have been raised from the dead by my Father in heaven. He has entrusted all authority in heaven and on earth to me. Therefore, go. Go and proclaim the good news of salvation. Now, I think we probably all know that. We know that's true. We believe that. But are we doing it? What does our prayer life say about the priority of missions? 
How much of our time are we giving to pray for current missionaries, to pray that God would raise up future missionaries, to pray for those who don't know Christ around us, to pray for opportunities to share the gospel? How many of us are prayerfully ready to give the answer for the hope that we have when the Lord opens an opportunity? And how often are we found flat-footed or fearful when those opportunities come? How many of us would seriously consider a call to the mission field if the Lord gave it to us? And how many of us think, no, I wouldn't want to do that? One convert to Christianity that I read recently quipped, you know, the world is much more ready to hear about Christ than Christians seem to be to talk about Him. It's a convicting statement, isn't it? And yet that is the central mission that God has given to the church. And God gives each of us opportunities to talk about His salvation if we will take Him. I was so encouraged recently. Some of you may have seen this because it went a bit viral uh, on, online. I was encouraged by the Oklahoma University girls softball team. Some of you know exactly what I'm talking about when I say that, but Oklahoma won the girls' uh, college World Series for the third straight year, the most dominant stretch in the history of the sport. And that was good enough to get a number of their players an interview in front of some ESPN reporters. Now, these three are unbelievable athletes. They haven't been to seminary. They probably don't have, you know, educated Bible training But these three were ready to talk about Christ. And so when one of the reporters said, what keeps you going through such a season? What gives you joy throughout such a long season? One by one, these three talked about, well, when I first earned a trophy, it turned out to be completely empty and unsatisfying. But then I came to know Christ and he's changed everything. And then the next one talked about how this world is not her home anymore. Her joy isn't dependent upon outcomes in this life, but on the eternal hope that she has in Christ. And then the next one talked about how her joy is sustainable because she knows every day that she is playing for God, not for fans or for wins. And you went down the line, and here was an example of three girls who were ready to give an answer for the hope that they had, when God gave them an opportunity. And my prayer is that every one of us will be praying regularly for those opportunities and will be ready with the answer when they come. But here's the great part. Christ's command to us is not go and figure out how to convert people to Jesus. No, Jesus promises that he will bring others to know him through the proclamation of the gospel, and that command comes through the power of the one to whom all authority on heaven and earth has been given. In fact, look at verses 17 and 18. Now, I realize verses 17 and 18 raise all sorts of questions in controversy because they reference handling snakes and drinking poison and such. And aside from the question of, okay, were these verses original to Christ or not, these verses are really pretty straightforward. They are not a promise that any Christian can just pick up a snake or drink poison and be just fine. They are a promise that Christ was going to accompany the disciples' testimony with signs that would authenticate and demonstrate the truth of the good news they came with. And every single thing that's mentioned here in verses 17 and 18 is mentioned in the book of Acts and in our annals of church history. 
And just turn over to the book of Acts and you'll find the disciples proclaiming the gospel and casting out demons and speaking in new tongues that they hadn't learned before and healing the sick. And in Acts 28, a viper latches onto Paul, but he's just fine. It doesn't harm him. And we have the account in Rome's persecution of a believer forced to drink poison who suffered no hurt from it. I see Christ perfectly fulfilled these verses. Again, it's not a promise that this will be true of everyone. These signs were primarily used by the Lord in the early days of the church before the New Testament was available to the church or in areas of the world where the gospel had never come before. And so we expect to see them in unique ways in the early days of the church. But what I want to remind us this morning is that ultimately it wasn't those miracles that led people to come to Christ. In verse 19, we read that Jesus had ascended to the right hand of God. And it is Christ reigning at the right hand of God, holding all authority on heaven and earth and all of his sovereignty, sending his Holy Spirit that draws people to Christ. And guess what? That's all still true today. Christ is still at the right hand of his Father. Christ is still reigning in heaven with all authority and heaven on earth is his. Christ is still sending his Holy Spirit in all sorts of creative ways in every corner of the world to draw people, children and adults, to know him. And his word will not fail. And so we are just called to be obedient messengers, trusting in the power of the word of God with the spirit of God to accomplish what he said he would accomplish. That's the result of resurrection. And so, brothers and sisters, we come to the end of this gospel. What a glorious testimony it is to a risen Lord. But if I could remind you just briefly how we started, way back in Mark 1, 1. We said that Peter's goal in sharing this testimony of Jesus' life was twofold. One, to demonstrate who Jesus is, that he is the Son of God and the Savior of sinners. And two, to make it clear that just as Jesus took up his cross for us, he calls us now to repent, believe, and take up our cross to follow him. And so as we come to the end of this gospel, I want us to ask ourselves those two questions. Have we seen and believed Jesus for who he is, the anointed Son of God, sent to fulfill all of the prophecies and bring salvation to anyone who turns from sin to follow him? And have we now taken up our cross to follow him in a whole life commitment that turns from self to say, I am yours. I will do whatever you call me to, for you are my king. That's the questions we need to answer as we come to the end of this gospel and behold this resurrected Christ. Let's pray. Father, how I thank you for your word. How I thank you for your word which bears witness to the risen Savior Jesus Christ. And perhaps we think or have thought of Christianity as a religion before and have not thought of this as truth in history, a fact that demands a response, that we will either believe and trust for our salvation or we will reject to our great eternal harm. And Father, even if we have answered those questions, perhaps we recently have lost sight of just how glorious our Savior is. Would you lift Christ high before our minds and our hearts this morning? Would we be eager and ready and prayerful 
to go and take this good news to the world that you might save more and more to the glory of your name. And we ask this in a resurrected Christ's name. Amen. The Westminster Pulpit is courtesy of Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. You are welcome to worship with us on Sunday mornings at 8 or 11 a.m. To learn more or have questions about the gift of salvation through Christ Jesus our Savior, contact us at westpca.com. Thank you, and may Christ be glorified through this ministry, the Westminster Pulpit.